Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Kavita Chinayan. Kavita became drawn to the direct path through the teachings of Greg Good and Sri Atmananda Krishna Menon. She has studied yoga, Sri Vidya Sadhana under the direction of Sri Chaitanyananda Nata Sarasvati, Vedanta and Tantra through Chinmaya Mission, and the teachings of Sri Premananda, Sally Kempton, and Paul Muller Ortega. Chinayan blends her expertise in cardiology with her knowledge of Ayurveda, yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and the direct path in her program for patients to discover bliss amid chronic illness. She is an integrative cardiologist at Beaumont Health System and associate professor of medicine at Oakland University Beaumont School of Medicine in Rochester, Michigan. So with that, hello, Kavita. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Jacob. Thanks so much for having me. So it's a real pleasure to talk to you today. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about your book, Shakti Rising, Embracing Shadow and Light on the Goddess Path to Wholeness, which I'll, I'll show here, even though this is um, mostly going to be audio for our listeners. So before we get into a uh, discussion about your book, I'd love to hear a little bit about your own personal story and what has led you to this work on the Mahavidyas and Tantra. Yeah, so the, the story is very familiar, you know, something that most of us who are on this path have been through in one form or other. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as as you know, um, most of us are, I mean, all of us are driven by this uh, inherent sense of lack, the yeah. Anava Mala. Mm -hmm. And um, that kind of drives us to seek whatever it is that uh, we seek, you know, in terms of permanent contentment and uh, permanent fulfillment. And for me, that seeking really involved academic success and uh, getting one thing after another in terms of achievements and success and so on. And, um, and you know, somewhere along the way, I realized that um, it didn't really matter what I was achieving. There was never really an end to it and uh, right. to the seeking. It just went on and on. And, um, it was always this lure of, okay, once I have that, I'll be complete. Yes. But that, that never led to that sense of fulfillment. And so I had this epiphany, you know, at one point that um, what I was really seeking was the end of seeking. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that is really the, the driving force for each of us. And um, although, you know, I, my spiritual journey, so to speak, kind of began in childhood, I grew up in India and was immersed in, you know, the uh, philosophy of yoga and Vedanta and so on. Um, but this, this kind of led to this deepening and um, into this path of, um, you know, very deep self-inquiry and so on. So after several years of that, um, I heard, literally heard this voice in my head saying, um, you take up Sri Vidya. Mm. And um, this was after years of studying Advaita Vedanta. And um, I had no idea what Sri Vidya was. I hadn't even heard of it. This was kind of like, what is this? Mm -hmm. And um, and so I started researching it and then got initiated into it and, and uh, began to study. And, and then I encountered these Mahavidyas uh, on this path. And it was just... Um, uh, you know, one of those things just opens the doors of understanding and moving into like the act actualization and um, the sweetness of non-duality. Mm. Uh, in and through this path of these particular deities and and how they unfold in each of our lives. So. Um, that's that's really what happened. Yeah. Now, growing up in India, was was your family particularly inclined towards the spiritual teachings, or was it just kind of the cultural environment of India being saturated in these teachings? You were just steeped in that, or was it something more? Um, was there something along the way that spurred you in that direction? Well, um, no, yes and no. You know, my my family, um, and I come from a Shaivite family, mm -hmm. so there was a lot of, um, you know, immerse, immersion. And, and I come from a particular uh, community of Shaivites that are known as Veera Shaivas mm -hmm. in, the, in the southern part of India. Okay. And it's really based in um, bhakti ah. and um, and completely non-denominational and, and so on. So... 
Um, but when we, when my parents did these rituals and the pujas and things like that, um, my um, my inherent rebellious nature was like, why are we doing this? You know, what is the significance of this? Yeah. Because you can't tell me to do something without really explaining that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, to be honest, a lot of, um, Hindus, I would say most, um, people who are steeped in this, in a cultural way, don't really understand the significance of a lot of things we do. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that kind of drew me away from Hinduism for a while. I was more interested in Christianity because it seems much more simple and straightforward. And I was attending uh, Christian schools and so on, as most people do in India, in urban India. And, um, and very miraculously, when I was in high school, actually, uh, my math teacher also happened to be a Sanskrit scholar. And... Um, and very much in the Sringeri Mutt, you know, the Shankaracharya's Mutt of Advaita Vedanta, yeah. very involved in that. And she just pulled me out of class one day for no good reason and said, I'm going to start teaching you to chant the Bhagavad Gita. Amazing. For no, I, To this day, I don't know why she picked me. Yeah. And she just started teaching me. And then that became like, you know, my path, so to speak. I was really immersed in the Bhagavad Gita and I have been for the last 30 years or so. So, um, and, and, and that kind of opened these, you know, doors of inquiry. It's like, who am I really? Why am I here? And that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, your book that you wrote is, uh, is about the direct path. And, mm -hmm. and so I'm curious, what is not the direct path? <laughs> yeah. And then what is the direct path for those yeah. that are not familiar? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, in, in the book, I describe both the progressive or the indirect paths and the, the direct path. Mm -hmm. So uh, the progressive paths are the ones that, um, you know, a lot of us are familiar with, which is yoga and tantra and Vedanta. They're all, uh, you know, uh, indirect or progressive paths. Progressive path means that um, we start from this understanding that, you know, the ordinary state of mind where we are identified as this person, as this story, or as this body-mind. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we, you know, progressively purify our minds and bodies in various ways. And for instance, if you look at the Yoga Sutras, there is this, the eightfold path, which starts with the yamas and niyamas and then goes progressively. And, and so too in Vedanta, you know, there are all these prerequisites and then you meet them and then and then you you slowly get into this understanding that I am not this body-mind. And, and that comes through this progression along the path. Um, the direct path is different because it starts with the premise that you are already divine. Mm -hmm. You are that, that non-dual satchit ananda. And so what happens if you take a stand as that pure awareness and then examine your, you know, your mind and body from that viewpoint? Mm -hmm. And um, and so then the, the inquiry is, is along the lines of, okay, I stand as awareness, as my true nature, and then I observe the world, the body, the mind, and so on. And, and so the direct path isn't necessarily a short path. <laughs> mm -hmm. So to, just to be very clear, because in the direct path too, you know, even though we take a stand as awareness, that isn't stable. And, and that stability comes from constant inquiry and looking at these objects, so to speak, in our experience in uh, increasing, increasingly subtler ways and, um, and becoming free of that. Mm -hmm. So it's just this, the, the vantage point from where we begin the path is what determines whether it's the direct path or the progressive path. I see. And there are, you know, branches of the direct path in various, um, you know, traditions, for instance, of course, as you know, in non-dual Shaiva Tantra or Kashmir Shaivism, there's the Pratyabhigna Hrutayam, yeah, uh, yeah. and that is that that school is really the direct path or the in that recognition. And so it is also in various Buddhist traditions and so on. So it isn't necessarily, you know, unique to uh, the Vedantic paths, but this is the one that I was particularly drawn to because mm. of Greg. 
Yeah. So it's not uh, because I remember the first time I ever saw this term direct path, it sort of implied like a non that there was no sequence to it or that it was just sort of like there you are and that's it. But you, I hear you saying it's not exactly that. It's from the starting position, but then there still is sequence both to, you know, the sequence of sadhana is still there in the direct path. It's just a matter of how you position yourself when you begin the path. Absolutely. So the direct path is not what is known as new Advaita. Mm. You know, the, the thing that there is nothing to do, nowhere to go. Right. And it, no, no, that's not the claim of the direct path. It's just saying, you know, why don't you take a stand as who you really are? But but see, this is the this is the subtle thing here. There is no possible way for us to take a stand as awareness unless we have done a lot of the progressive path yeah, kinds of practices, right? right? Yeah. So we, we can't even do that because it's such a subtle thing. Yeah. Um, and so most people who come to the direct path have done a lot of the progressive path practices. So uh, I don't find them contradictory. In fact, I find them complementary. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned this word non-dual, which I think, you know, a lot of people, uh, it's a little bit of an ambiguous term for some for some some people. So what is the non what is the kind of non-dual self-inquiry? Like what does that look like compared to maybe other forms of self-inquiry? Yeah, so this is the issue, you know, the definition of non-duality, I think, is is um, it's kind of fluid. It yeah. depends on the tradition, I would say. But non-duality is a recognition, um, you know, in Vedanta, for instance, we say recognition of the one without a second. Yeah. And uh, so there is no other, right? There is pure subjectivity, and that is um, there are no, the objects that arise in our experience are also, you know, me. So I am the subject and the object that arises in my experience is also me. So that is that non-duality as in there is no other. Yeah. And it and and so in, in non-duality, all duality kinds of concepts of good and bad and, you know, the opposites are reconciled because there, then we begin to see in a more holistic fashion. Mm. So the non-dual kinds of inquiry that I have included in the book are from the direct path, where you take a stand as, uh, as awareness. And in the beginning of the book, I describe how to do that. And then when you stand as awareness, then you examine a particular experience such as time, or you examine your experience of space and really see if it is as it appears. Right. And I mean, how does time appear? And uh, time only can appear as uh, a thought, right, as a an arising, so to speak, in in our in the witnessing awareness experience. And and when we actually look into that, that um, that arising of thought or emotion or or sensation, then we see that there is actually no separation between awareness and, and that arising. Mm. And so that that is the kind of non-dual inquiry I've included in the book. Wow, that's a really good explanation of that. Um, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the Mahavidyas. What are the Mahavidyas? And actually, maybe I, I like maybe entering into this by talking just about what Mahavidya means, because yeah. it might surprise people that what its translation is. Yeah. So um, a Mahavidya is like a, you know, we can split it into two words, Maha and Vidya. Maha is great and Vidya is knowledge. Mm -hmm. So, and, and so when we look at, for instance, the Sri Vidya tradition, there are, you know, there is the, there are the Mahavidyas are these great goddesses that their only purpose, you know, is to grant liberation. And then there are the other vidyas, which are not Mahavidyas, where you can approach these goddesses and say, I want this, you know, I want to pass this exam, or I want to get this apartment, or I want to get this job. And, and that's, that's different, right? Yeah. That is um, um, what, what we call ordinary vidya. But the Mahavidyas really don't concern themselves with any of that. Mm -hmm. Their only purpose is to grant liberation. So... Um, what are they? So, you know, if we look at the tantric um, concept, so in the beginning, there is just this potential. And we can uh, think of this, uh, this is before time and space, there is just this potential, which is 
which we can think of as Shiva and Shakti uh, together. And the first, you know, um, movement within this potential is self-awareness or this um, this self-recognition. And we say in Tantra, uh, Shiva looking at himself as Shakti. Mm -hmm. And so that separation that happens between Shiva and his self-awareness is that first um, the, the first movement of creation. And in that seeming separation, there is this, you know, we can say that's the big bang, so to speak. And in, in that instant, um, Shakti takes 10 different forms of creation as time and as space and, and, um, you know, eight other powers and, and propagates, uh, creation, you know, and it's set in motion, so to speak. And, um, so we, we look at Shiva as, you know, this witnessing awareness without attributes and all of his powers are Shakti. So it's, we can never really separate Shiva and Shakti. You know, this is one thing that's so important to understand that in any Shakta path, any Shakti path, Shiva is already implied in any Shiva path, Shakti is already implied because right. you can't separate them like water and wetness, yeah. you know, yeah. if, if they are together. So, um, so in the Mahavidyas, Shakti takes, you know, center stage because she is the creative energy or the creative power of Shiva. And so in, and in these 10 forms of Shakti, we see all these powers of creation, but creation of what? Of course, there is a creation of the cosmos, the universe, but also the creation of this microcosm of of who we end up thinking we are mm -hmm. and this limitation that happens because creation is a limitation, right, of Shiva and Shakti. Uh, it is a limitation of that Prakasha into Akasha. And, um, and then there is also the limitation of this individual. So who we are is this infinite uh, potential and then we become limited as this body mind, as the story, and um, and and then all the concepts such as karma and evolution apply to this body mind and the story. So that's why the Mahavidyas are so great, you know, because they um, they show us the creative kind of uh, process of the macrocosm as well as the microcosm. And the other important thing about the Mahavidyas is. Whereas we look at various deities and say they're all light, mm -hmm. there is, there's all goodness. Here, because it's a non-dual path, there is no such thing, you know, because in their iconography, in their uh, philosophy, these Mahavidyas show us that they carry both the shadow and the light in them, mm -hmm. just like in both the macrocosm and the microcosm. That's great. So that's actually a good segue to my next question, which is about the shadow. So, you know, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, you know, what what do we what do we mean when we're talking about the shadow and 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 how can someone uh, well, I'll ask a follow up question then after we talk about the, the shadow. So the shadow is essentially um, our disavowed aspects of self, correct? Mm -hmm. But then how do we embrace the shadow without becoming, for example, drug addicts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, here, you know, of course, a lot of people who have studied psychology know the, the word shadow from, you know, Jung and uh, his yeah. work and so on. But here, what what we are referring to the shadow is the one that keeps us bound as this body-mind, okay. as this limited self. And the light is that which opens us to understanding who we really are, which is this, which and our true nature is truly divine and unborn and undying. So the, the shadow here refers to whatever keeps us bound to this limited identity and the light is the one that opens us to unlimitedness. I see. Um, so that's, that's how I've described the shadow and the light here. Okay. And so what, what happens is, you know, a lot of times... Uh, when we get on the spiritual path and we have made uh, a certain amount of progress, our natural tendency is to bypass everything that we don't like about ourselves. Yeah. You know, it's to is to push that away because we, you know, our our desires go from you know uh, they evolve from being tamasic to rajasic and to becoming sattvic. 
And then those sattvic desires are the hardest things to get rid of, right? The hardest, they become the veil that becomes really difficult to pierce through because we have all these ideas about what spirituality is and and so on. So, um, so the Mahavidyas actually, you know, when we start with their sadhana, they just cut through all of that. And there, no bypassing is allowed. So you you get to see what is um, limiting us. We get to see what is limiting us and keeping us bound. And then the, the beauty is as soon as we start seeing that and bring that into the light of awareness and embracing that, saying, okay, oh, yeah, I see it, without bypassing, without pushing it away, then we really truly start opening to non-duality because ultimately when you stand as witnessing awareness— Witnessing awareness makes no distinction between sattvic and tamasic, mm-hmm. right? It has no ability to do that. Everything is welcomed into witnessing awareness. If it's arising, it's already welcomed. Yeah. So, uh, and, and to realize that is to see that, you know, our ideas about good and bad really don't exist in the way we think they do. And and so coming to your question of so so what does it how do we go about without really you know giving into licentiousness and so on right so that's why I wrote this book um, relating each Mahavidya to one of the yamas and niyamas of the Yoga Sutras mm-hmm. and how do we transmute the shadow into light and and so you know the so here is another distinction that we need to. Um, make between some of the other paths and the tantric path. So in tantra, it's not really about opening to this witnessing awareness and forgetting all about the limitedness, right? Right. It is a constant refinement so that that is brought into this limited body-mind and and it begins to move the body-mind in in divine ways. Mm -hmm. So it is actually that um, the jivan mukti of this light transforming our very DNA. So it's not like saying, okay, this is all Maya. I'm here. The body doesn't matter, right? It's a constant refinement. And so that's what the Mahavidya show us too. I see. So, okay. So I have a couple of questions related to that. One is, um, you know, if it's not clear to those who are listening, the Mahavidyas are goddesses. And uh, in um, Kavita's beautiful book, there are representations of these goddesses. And some of them are very fierce looking and, and some of them are beautiful. And there's a whole range of expressions. Um, but my question is related kind of to um, deity images in general in relation to our sadhana because you know i understand there's this wonderful mapping onto the 10 mahavidyas of the the yamas and the niyamas from classical yoga but what would what inclines us to use the mahavidyas you know the representations of the mahavidyas rather than just you know engaging with the yamas and niyamas yeah that's such a good question i mean why would you even want to do that that's basically <laughs> what you're asking yeah uh, so, so you know, the imagery in, in uh, some of these uh, tantric paths, um, it, is, it is deliberately fierce for mm-hmm. a particular reason, because it needs to break through our, you know, our preconceived ideas of what the divine looks like. Yeah, yeah. You know, because we have these ideas that it's all you know, all good and all soft and lollipops. (laughs) So uh, these, this imagery and, and because they are the Mahavidyas, they really are in your face. Mm. Right. And, and, and if you look at, you know, some of these descriptions of um, where these goddesses come from, for instance, Kali, um, she lives on the periphery of society, right? It's like, You'll find her in cremation grounds and in graveyards and in places where nobody wants to go because we've pushed those things away from our collective consciousness. But that's where you actually find Kali. You know, that's the, they say that's her favorite haunt, so to speak. That's if you really want to find her, that's where you need to go. Mm. And um, because and, and she's not the only one. All of these Mahavidyas are like that, you know, and. So it is really saying that you need to, and and the tantric path is like this, especially the left-handed paths, where you really need to wake up from this idea that uh, something is unacceptable. Because 
we are so bound in our moral, social, and cultural yeah. norms that we think nothing exists outside of that, right? And that is how we get so steeped in duality. And so here they're breaking all these kinds of norms. Mm, mm, excellent. So then, and then my my other question was, what? Where in the the literature, I mean, was the was the relationship between the the yamas and niyamas and the Mahavidya something that came to you in your own contemplation, or is that something that we find in in parts of the tradition that that kind of um, coexisting of those two things? Oh no no no! This is this is all something that came to me um, nice. in yeah in my own contemplations, um, and and you know the. This book is really not written in a conventional way, uh, the way the Mahavidyas are typically described, because the uh, the traditional way of worshipping and invoking the Mahavidyas are through mantras and yantras and yeah. things yeah. like that, which, I'll, which I'm actually teaching in a course, um, and that starts later this, um, in a couple months. But I really wanted to explore the Mahavidyas in a way that makes sense to every spiritual path because they are relevant as these uh, aspects of creation uh, without making, and, and they have been really inaccessible to the average spiritual practitioner, the Mahavidyas, because of this, you know, esoteric kind of very, very shrouded uh, kind of mysticism that that underlies their iconography and their teachings. So um, I just wanted to make it, um, you know, more accessible. Yeah, um, yeah. And that was, <laughs> that's, that's how I, it just occurred to me. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to do that. I mean, because you can, you can, due to its accessibility, people can are, feel more invited into the kind of conversation, and then they can find out more about the esoteric as they explore more. So yes. I think it's a beautiful um, starting place. So, um, okay, let's talk a little bit about maybe some specific Mahavidyas. I think we, we probably don't have time to go through all of them, but maybe three or four that you think are particularly um, important or or maybe are more more interesting than others. They're all interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, but ones that might, you know, wet somebody's whistle and 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 make them inclined to buy your book. <laughs> 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 so we can talk about Kali since, yeah. you know, a lot of people are uh, familiar with uh, Kali. Yeah. And I think it makes sense to talk about Kali because there is so much misunderstanding about her, yeah, too. Yeah, certainly. And um, <clears throat> so Kali is um, always and always a Mahavidya. You know, that's one thing that we need to be very sure about because, yeah. you know, my guru... Um, talks about Kali like this, you know, he says, she stands at one, you know, you have a door between you and Kali, and she's standing right there, mm -hmm. out, you know, out of this, and you're standing here on the other side of the door. And you better be careful about invoking her, because what she'll do is she'll reach through the keyhole, grab you, and pull you through. <laughs> because she's not interested in any other kinds of things. She's her only purpose is to grant liberation. Yeah. That's it. Right. So um, she's not interested in how you're going to feel during the process. <laughs> she's not <laughs> she's not interested in your comfort. She's not interested in, you know, oh, I can't handle this. So what she does very systematically is she cuts through all the bonds you have in life. Right. And all of a sudden things that are not serving your sadhana, they will go. Yeah. And they can be relationships, they can be like, you know, financial things, they can be your job, they can be your livelihood. You must be prepared to let go of all that if you really want to invoke Kali. Mm. Right? Mm. And so Kali Sadhana is really not for everybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, and also there's so much of misunderstanding, in, especially in this, in this era where we are thinking that there is a resurgence of the divine feminine, which I disagree with because everything in existence is Shakti. There is no resurgence. She's already here, She's already right? Here. Yeah. yeah. And so we can't equate Kali with an angry woman mm. because <laughs> that's not who she is, right? Because Kali is the creative force of time, which is why she's the first one. She's Adi Shakti, right? Time is when creation begins. And so she is this, you know, she's depicted as completely black because 
She is that primordial force, that womb from which everything arises. Mm -hmm. And um, and so as, as time, she traps us on this linear timeline where we think there is a sequence of events of a past, a present, and a future, even though we can't really find it, Yeah. right? Yeah. If we really contemplate, there is no past, it doesn't exist. There is no future, it doesn't exist. And even the present as we think doesn't exist, mm -hmm. right? Because we are always saying, for instance, in popular culture, be present, be in the present. You can't possibly be anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> right yeah. because but whether you know that or not you're always in this eternal now it's just we don't realize that because our minds are on on this linear timeline yeah and so kali traps us in that linear timeline right this is how she traps us and that that is the shadow aspect of mm -hmm. kali of becoming entrapped in this identity which rests in the past or future right if you think if i asked you who are you it's going to be a whole lot of stories based in the past yeah ask me my stories will be in the past or about where i want to be in the future yeah right? because in this eternal now our identity doesn't exist mm -hmm. so so the, all of the shadows of all the mahavidyas come from you know kali's shadow of yeah. being trapped in this linear time. So, which is why when we invoke Kali, we have to have an understanding that she'll just pull us into the eternal now, right? In that, through that keyhole. Mm -hmm. And that will have nothing to do whatsoever with our, you know, our relationships and our comfort and our, you know, the kind of juicy stories we have around life, which are all based on linear timelines. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, that is why she's this Mahavidya and her biggest shadow is is aggression and violence. And we we all, especially spiritual practitioners, we come to this path and think, oh, my gosh, I'm vegan and I'm now, you know, nonviolent. Right. But, but but then and this is, you know, from my own experience. And when I became vegan, for instance, I, it was like I had all these judgments about everybody else who was not. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we see how our microaggressions in, in the way we judge people as soon as we meet them in the way we are constantly our minds are going when somebody is talking yeah. and we are we are projecting we are our lens which is made of this past or future is what we filter our experience through mm -hmm. and that is the fundamental cause of violence and it you we never have to kill anybody or we never have to speak a you know an external word and we can still be very violent because of this being trapped in Kali's timeline. Mm -hmm. And um, and 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 so she is, you know, the Adi Shakti. So then it's safe to say that the principle of nonviolence from this perspective gets tends to get interpreted rather superficially um, mm -hmm. because it's not it's not taking into consideration the subtler forms of violence that sort of characterize our everyday consciousness. Yeah. So is there such a thing as escaping completely, like being like purely nonviolent or is that part of the mythology that we're, we're in the non-dual path we're seeking to transcend? Well, here's the thing. So um, how can we become truly nonviolent, right? It is by seeing that there is no other. Yeah. Right. It's it's through that understanding and, and seeing in experience, not just through intellectual knowledge, but actually seeing in our own experience that there is no other. And and so that truly that nonviolence comes when we we have that experience an ongoing experience that whatever is coming through from me is in me. Right. My um, my experience of another person is also in me in and and not in me as this uh, this personalized awareness, but this global awareness in which me, the, the me also Resides. arises and yeah. subsides. Yeah. Right. So it is then that um, we lose the ability to to really judge anybody, to to really see 
good and bad. See, and 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 so people ask me, or my, this has been my own inquiry too. Is then so? What happens to us? Are we going to just become completely, you know, quiescent and not really act in the world? Well, it isn't like that either, yeah. right? Because um, remember that we we talked about this refinement process. So we are still acting in the world, and we are still doing what we think is right. But we are no longer attached to that outcome. Right. We are no longer attached to the body doing the thing. It's a, mm. There isn't a me doing things, yeah. right? So um, it's it's subtle distinction there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So <clears throat> let's move on now to our second Mahavidya. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. We can talk about Tara, who's the second Mahavidya. Okay. And um, so um, Tara is very interesting because she is that that primordial vibration from which all of creation arises mm. right yeah. so um uh, you know for instance in quantum physics there is this the the background microwave uh, radiation uh, i think that's what it's called which which is that um, background vibration that is from the big bang yeah right it is ongoing and um so she is that 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 primordial vibration, and so like the the Shabda Brahman, you know that 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 foundational. So he, like they say, in the beginning was the word. Yeah. So it, there is that um, that primordial vibration, which then loops and loops and loops and becomes you know the five elements, and then the gunas and and so on, and then becomes all of creation. So if you look at the 36 tattvas, for instance, that would be like up there as the primordial vibration. Yeah. And, um, and so, and, and so what happens in Tara's shadow is that all of these vibrations, the course of vibrations that we come to take ourselves to be, they, they kind of mask and like, you know, completely, um, mask the underlying primordial vibration. Yeah. So she is actually depicted in three different forms. There is the white Tara, which is that primordial vibration. It can never be touched, even though it's transcendent. It's also imminent, so it, it can't be touched. And then there is a multicolored Tara, which represents all of our coarser vibrations. Mm. And so this vibration is touched in our deep meditation, for instance. And then, you know, many of us have this experience of this vibration kind of suddenly popping up and showing itself as this, this hum or this ohm, you know, as, um, as that. So she represents that. Mm. So would the shadow of Tara also include, for example, um, you know, labels and categories like words that come to define us? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm. And and the roles we come to play, yeah. you know? Because then uh, because there is that, you know, that that uh, labeling of myself as a mother, as a doctor, as a spiritual practitioner, and you see how those labels themselves kind of become that covering yeah. of of the underlying primordial vibration. Yeah. Yeah. So then what is the um the light of Tara or how might we use Tara uh, in sadhana? So Tara's light is truth, mm. satya, yeah. right? So because we are like uncovering all of this and saying, this is not who I am. This is not who I am. So what am I really? So it is it is sticking to the truth at all times. And that truth is much more than telling the truth mm. as we in commonly interpret uh, you know, the, the, uh, yamas and niyamas. Yeah. And it is much more than that. It is actually this constant awareness of our labels, of our, um, of the way the mind is going in our validations and our justifications, yeah. um, yeah. constantly. Right. And then coming back to the truth again and again and again. That's how we really open to Tara's light. Mm, beautiful. Okay. Let's do one more. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, and I'll let you choose what you think would be the best one. Let's talk about um, let's talk about Tripura Bhairavi. She's the fifth Mahavidya. Okay. And uh, you know, I love all of them. Yeah. To be honest, I, it's hard for me to pick, but um, Tripura Bhairavi is very interesting because she is the um, the force of Kriya Shakti. 
Mm. Right. So, so you have, you know, you have this primordial vibration and it within it, it already has, um, the, the, it is embedded with the, uh, Icha Shakti and with the Jnana Shakti and the Kriya Shakti. Mm -hmm. And the, the Icha Shakti is represented by Tripura Sundari, the third Mahavidya. And the Jnana Shakti is represented by Bhuvaneshwari, the fourth Mahavidya. And then Tripura Bhairavi is the Kriya Shakti. Mm. And so she is the power that converts the primordial vibration into creation. So she is the one that makes the will and knowledge, converts them or, mm. you know, brings them into creation. And in us, you know, Bhairavi represents as tamas, inertia. You know, when you think about action, that inability to do something, <laughs> even when we know we need to do that, yeah. right? Which all of us go through. Yeah. And, and that is tamas, really. You know, that mm -hmm. is that inertia. And um, a while, a long time ago, when I was contemplating on, on tamas, it just occurred to me that you change one letter, the tamas, and put the word, you know, put the letter P, it becomes tapas. Mm, yeah. Right. Which is the exact opposite. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the tamas and the tapas are are kind of the the shadow and the light of uh, Bhairavi. And so tapas, you know, we normally um, interpret that in classical yoga as austerity, as as this, you know, determination. But it's more than that. You know, it is it is that fire that needs to be lit where all of our actions and our thoughts and our emotions are poured into that. Mm -hmm. And we allow this fire, this chidagni to, to light us, you know, it becomes the fire in the belly and burns away that tamas mm -hmm. so that the, the divine will and the divine knowledge can actually flow through because we have burned through that tamas. Mm -hmm. Wow. So in your book, you know, you go through, you have a, there's a lot of beautiful practices and meditations that people can kind of sink their teeth into. Um, but kind of generally speaking, when it comes to the sadhana around the Mahavidyas, you know, is the recommendation that someone kind of moves through them sequentially? Or is it more, you know, you pick the one that seems to resonate with whatever challenges you have? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so that's a great question. And um so just to clarify, you know, we don't need to do the sadhana of all the Mahavidyas. Okay. One is enough. Mm. And one can take lifetimes. Right. So, um, so, and so the Mahavidyas work in a very beautiful way. When you open to one and do the sadhana of one, she will take you to the other nine. Mm. Because they're all connected. Yeah. So, um, and so who should, you know, which Mahavidya should we work with? And of course, if, if somebody has a liking or a kind of are drawn to one, they can just do that. Um, in this book, I have, I have depict them, depicted them as being sequential, mm -hmm. but they need not be. Okay. Okay. They need not be. And, and you'll see, you know, anybody who takes up this sadhana, the Mahavidyas, they'll have their own interpretation of it. It doesn't have to correlate with the yamas and uh, niyamas. They can be, you know, it just, this is how Shakti works within yeah. us, you know? She just works on our individual kind of um, wherever we are at and, and gives us insights that are relevant to each of us. Mm. Excellent. So it's... Um... So it's more that a kind of intuitive connect, a, f a feeling of an intuitive connection to a specific Mahavidya is sort of the doorway. Yes, the, it's it is that intuitive uh, thing. But then, um, as I was saying, you know, we're I'm do I'm collaborating with uh, two others to come up with a course that starts in a month or so, where actually there is also a correlation of these Mahavidyas with your um, with particular grahas and nakshatras in your um, in your chart. So if we really want to know, you know, which Mahavidya to work with, then we can look at the chart and say, well, this is the sadhana you should be doing. And this is astrological right. chart you're talking about? Jyotish. Astrological, yes, Jyotish. Okay. I see. So um, that's another way of figuring out which sadhana to do. Ah, that's excellent. Because I'm sure, yeah. I'm, sure I, I'm the kind of person that gets paralyzed by choice. So I'd just be like, I don't know, should I take this one? <laughs> I'd much rather just have it written in my chart somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. So this is for people who can't make up their minds. Uh, okay, that's great. <laughs> That's very important. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about, before we kind of close up our really great conversation, I think this has been so excellent, um, the elements of the path of the Mahavidyas, which you talk about at the end of the book. Um, so do you want to just go through those, you know, uh, um, just a little bit on each one, starting with devotion? Yeah, I think there are so many elements of this path because... Yeah. Um, Devotion is kind of like uh, the the first one because if we can't connect with the deity, you know, through that that love, yeah. then we, that practice won't make sense. Right, right. We just won't uh, be connected. Yeah. It won't be connected, and and that's true for any deity practice. Yeah. Um, so whether it's on the Shakta path or Shaiva path or whatever it may be, we really need to be able to connect with that. And um, so devotion is, is, you know, is one of those very important things that I talk about a lot in relation to Tripura Sundari, because that connects with that Icha Shakti. Yeah. To be able to allow the divine to work through us, we, it can't happen without devotion, mm -hmm. you know, without that uh, wanting to give in to this uh, ideal. Yeah. So, um, so that, that is actually, you know, I would say the foundation for, for this path. Mm. And, um, but there is, there are also other elements and, you know, because I come from a Advaita Vedanta path, um, a very important element on this path is discernment or mm -hmm. discrimination. Yeah. And, um, because we have to be able to discern and, and this discernment actually gets more and more subtle as the, our sadhana progresses. We have to be able to discern, for instance, where is this coming from? Is it coming from my own vasanas, yeah. you know, yeah. my own samskaras, or is this divine will? Yeah. Because we can easily mistake the two and easily. say, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, I like doing this. And so this must be divine will, right? <laughs> <laughs> So um, the discernment, you know, of course, Shankara talks so much about Viveka and the Viveka Chudamani yeah. for this reason, because it's such an important path. And um, so I, I go on and on about discernment quite a bit in the in the book. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And and, you know, the other paths are this wanting to do self-inquiry. Mm -hmm. And that also comes from bhakti, bhakti for the path. You know, it need not be to a deity, but is that burning desire, which is called mumukshutvam. You have to have that burning desire to to awaken, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so, if, for instance, we talk a lot about kundalini in our classes. And uh, the way I look at kundalini as being active or not is not through all the energetic fireworks and stuff that uh, that we come to associate kundalini yeah. It is really when our priorities shift, where awakening is the first, second, third, fourth priority, and everything else becomes secondary. You know, mm. everything is poured into that that primary purpose. Yeah. Right. That's when we can say the Kundalini has become active. I'm so glad that you said that. I feel like that's such a refreshing and important point of view because so many people uh, associate awakening with what you're just saying this kind of like hollywood moment you know this event yeah. that is sort of yeah. full of fireworks and they're in the you know they're in the ether and you know they're they've merged with the cosmos but really what you're saying is that that it's just it's as subtle as a shift in your priorities, yeah. which can sometimes go almost unnoticed, you know, yes. because it's like all of a sudden I'm not interested in that anymore, but I really yeah. want to do this practice. And if people could connect to that, I think it would be it just would be so much more accessible as, as because it's so much more obvious on that level rather than kind of waiting or hoping for this moment where you're going to be sitting on your cushion and, you know, all of a sudden you're going to be electrified, you know. Right. Um, and, and that may not happen. Right. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, not everybody is going to have a sudden, uh, you know, awakening experience. For most of us, it's going to be a gradual kind of unpeeling and, uh, you know, this getting things subtler and subtler and subtler and that more uh, that refinement process that yeah, happens. Yeah. So um, so I think that that desire has to be there for 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 that fuel to mm. kind of burn through and for that Kundalini to awaken, mm. so to speak. So I, I I do think that that is really important, and I can't remember what else I wrote in that chapter. But um, the other thing is, you know, this this radical honesty with ourselves on where we are. Yeah. 
because especially when you get into the spiritual community and uh, you know the yoga community or the spiritual community and you hear what's going on with everybody else and we start to think that that's happening to us mm -hmm. and we can sometimes think we are more advanced than we are and sometimes we can think that we are not there yet right and and so this radical honesty which also comes from that discernment mm -hmm. is is to know exactly where I am on my path. I think that's really important. And, and the Mahavidyas, you know, they, like I was saying earlier, they're completely no nonsense. Mm -hmm. So they'll show us, <laughs> you know, they will, they just don't, uh, you know, they just don't get into the self-deception. Yeah. So um, that's, that's very important, I think, too. Wow. Well, this has been so interesting, Kavita. Again, I'm here with Kavita Chinayan, and we're talking about her book, Shakti Rising, which is, um, the subtitle is Embracing Shadow and Light on the Goddess Path to Wholeness. Is there anything, Kavita, that you want to share in relation to what we've been talking about um, as, as a way to kind of close our conversation? Is there anything that we've maybe left out? No, I think we covered um, all the salient and important points. I think and so, too. Yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you, you mentioned this course a couple of times. So why don't you give yeah. us a little more information about that and, and where people can find out more about how to register for that course? Yeah, sure. So uh, it's all on my website. It's kavitamd.com, K-A-V-I-T-H-A-M-D.com. And um, there are, um, you know, the, the, uh, there is a course that's ongoing right now. It's called Shakti Rising. Mm -hmm. And um, that will, uh, I'll, be that'll become a self-study course uh, within a month and then we we are going to start a new course um later where we are going to have these deep dives into each mahavidya um with the yantras and the mantras and um based on the astrological significance okay so we're recording this on april 30th 2018 so if you're listening to this uh, soon after that date then check out uh, Kavita's website so that you can um, register. And of course, you can find her book on Amazon. Uh, <laughs> probably <laughs> other bookstores as well. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much, Kavita. It's been such a pleasure. Um, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, Jacob. You too. Mm -hmm.